Well, hello and welcome back to Fearless Questions, where we follow our questions to freedom. I'm your host, Jeff Blackburn, and today, my friends, we are so excited to welcome in Dr. Scott Kobaba. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Jeff. Thanks. Well, you guys, um, and Scott, I'm going to let you kind of give us a, a bit of background on your work as a doctor, um, but you've recently written a book called Physicians Untold Stories. And so just to give everybody a heads up, we're going to be today, we're going to be diving into this, the stuff that, you know, here at Fearless Questions, we say uh, it's fear drives that love, but it's, um, and it's hard to love things you're afraid of. And sometimes the questions of our, um, of healing and mystery and miracles and kind of divine um, intervention, these kind of coincidence type things cause a lot of people confusion and uh, but we're all interested in it but rarely do we find a safe place to talk about it and your latest book is a wonderful invitation into that conversation so scott as we get into that today why don't we just start could you just give us a little background in your uh in what you do as a doctor sure jeff i've been a doctor for 35 years it's hard for me to believe that it seems like it was just yesterday that i uh, graduated from medical school but in any event uh, I'm just an ordinary doc. I, um, I'm, I work in the suburbs of Chicago. I see everything that uh, that that you can imagine. Uh, and, and like they say on one of the television shows, you never know what's coming through the door. <laughs> I see sore throats and diarrhea and marital conflicts and heart attacks and strokes and whatever. <laughs> I've always wanted to be a doc, uh, and I love what I do. And um, when I got uh, oh about 20 years into into practice, I started to have a few unusual things happen to me, which then slowly prompted me to get into writing a book uh, in my abundant leisure time, of course, somewhere between <laughs> midnight and 2 a.m. You know, so I'm a pretty busy guy. I've got a busy practice. I've got seven kids, and where they came from, I have no idea. Uh-uh. <laughs> well, we don't want, we've already used the word diarrhea on the show. We don't want to get into like sex, sex ed as well, but, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but what, what area of the country do you uh, practice in? Have you I'm in the western suburbs of Chicago. Okay, okay. And you might have, if you said that, sorry, I was, I missed it, but, um, I just wanted to give people a context of the fact of kind of where you're at in the country and where you where you do your work. But um, well, you said after 20 years or so of practicing these, this thing started kind of building up inside of you. What was was there sort of um of an impetus for what kind of pushed you to say, you know what, I've I really need to write some of this stuff down. Like what what was that point for you? You know, there were a couple things uh, that started to to happen to me, and probably. The one that really pushed me was an occasion when I met with Dave Mokel, who's my friend, the, car- the uh, orthopedic surgeon. I was uh, making rounds, routine rounds on the floor, and, and all of a sudden, uh, Dr. Mokel came up to me uh, out of breath because I think he was running to, 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 to talk with me. And he said, Scott, Scott, I've got to tell you this incredible story. I said, okay, tell it to me. And he said, well, I, I can't tell you here because someone might hear me. <laughs> I said, that got my attention. Right. said, uh, okay, well, let's, let's go into a, a patient's room, and, an empty patient room, and, and you can tell me the story. So we did, and he closed the door. I said, Dave, who, who have you told this story to? And he said, well, no one. They'll think I was crazy. Well, Scott, let me just interrupt you real quick, but all I can think of is you're a doctor in Chicago and someone comes in breaking this news. It sounds a little bit like the uh, the Fugitive movie with Harrison Ford in Chicago. So. Yes, yes. <laughs> Does this turn that direction or does this, this story go another way? This, this story goes another way. Okay. Uh, and, uh, so he came so, in, he came in uh, wanting to not talk in front of everybody else. 
Yeah, he was he was embarrassed about the story, but he, he just had to get it out. And it was a, about a mutual patient. We we both shared the same patient, Mary. Okay. And he op- he 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 operated on Mary a, 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 about two or three weeks before that. And uh, during the operation, Mary arrested and and flatlined. She had no pulse, no respirations, uh, no response to pain, nothing. So they called a code in the OR. And when they do that, everyone runs in from the the rooms around. And one of the techs that happened to run in started to do CPR. And he had pretty bright red hair underneath his operating room cap. And he was doing CPR, but he wasn't doing it adequately enough. And Dr. Mokel, Dave Mokel, was in charge of the code. So he said, you know, please stop doing the CPR, let me take over. And the guy kept on doing it. And, you know, codes are, are pretty stressful situations. There's there's not uh, uh, a room for politeness. It's, you know, you're trying to save a life. Right. So when he asked the, the fellow that were tech again to, to step aside, he didn't. So Dave actually gave him a push, pushed him aside. He stumbled away and Dave started to do CPR. And that was adequate enough to, to perfuse her brain and, and get things going again. So she finally uh, started to get her own heartbeat and, and wake up, but she didn't wake up into consciousness. And it turns out that what happened was when they gave her the antibiotic, she arrested from that because she had a severe reaction, allergic reaction to that. Hmm. But she really didn't wake up until consciousness to the next day. And, and so she survived. The cardiologist took good care of her. And about three days later, Dr. Mokel went in to give her the final instructions for going home because she was ready to go home. And she said, thank you for saving my life. And Dr. Mokel is a pretty humble guy. And so he said, that's, you know, a team effort. Everyone pitched in and it was not just me. And she said, no, no, I saw I saw you uh, push that, that guy aside with the red hair and, and save my life. And Dr. Mokel, by that point, had some weak knees and had to sit down wasn't sure what where she was going with that. And then she went on to describe a lot of the other minor details that happened in the OR that day where Dr. Mokla had paged me, kept looking at the door to see if I was coming. Some other people had walked in. She mentioned who they, you know, that they were there and described them and so forth. And hmm. he said, Well, how did you how did you see all this? And she said, When I arrested I, my spirit or something went up to the top of the room and I could see everything that was happening in great detail. And she said, while I was there, my grandmother, who had been long dead, came to me and said, it wasn't my time to go, that I have to come back. But my grandmother told me if I was a good person, that I would have a place with her in heaven someday. And then she came, you know, then then she came back and, and went back into her body, evidently. And so, you know, Dr. Mocha was really, uh, he didn't know how to explain this. He, he tried to come up with some scientific explanation and just couldn't come up with one. And he was afraid to tell anyone else because he's an ordinary, routine, good kind of a doctor that mm-hmm. doesn't want people to think he's crazy. And so he really didn't tell anyone. And I was actually surprised he told me, but it was a mutual patient. So, uh, and that that got me to thinking that you know there, there's something really strange that happened here, and I wonder if other docs have similar experiences. Mm-hmm. And well, one question, just if, if you don't mind me jumping in sure. for a second. Um, and I had this question after reading a number of your stories when a few of the stories you tell, you were able to engage with these doctors directly. And I wonder if you, I know you said you guys shared this patient, um, right. but even then I wonder if it, was there something about the nature of your relationship with any of these folks that you think made them feel more comfortable talking to you? Or do you think it was just, they just had to tell somebody? Well, you know, that's, that's a good question, Jeff. And that gets to the question of well, why would these docs, uh, there's 26 docs in the store in the book, uh, that have stories. Why would these docs tell these amazing stories to me, and why would they allow them to be published? And 
I've been around for a long time. You know, I'm, I I know all the docs in the book very well. I wanted to make sure that I got stories from docs that I, I trusted very, very, very much, and and not some docs that, you know, were a little on the on the edge. <laughs> and, these are, and these are all ordinary routine docs. And the question is, you know, why would they tell me these stories? I think Dave told me the story just because, uh, you know, we're good friends and this is a mutual patient. Other docs, I actually solicited stories. So I would sit in the doctor's lounge and, and wait for docs to walk in early in the morning. And I'd say, you know, I, I'm doing a book and I've got a few stories from other docs. And, you know, do you have a story that you could tell me? And I think they trust me because I've been around for a long time. I've okay. been around for 30 years. But I think the real reason, Jeff, is that, uh, and I get into this in the book, I think most doctors are what I called in the book sappy do-gooders. Okay. They want to do some good every day. They want to help someone. And, and you know, doctors get a bad rap sometimes. But I, the docs I work with, and most docs in general, I think, are really good people. And I think what the docs wanted to do is, is make people aware that there's something else out there. Uh, that people need to know in this secular world that that there is a God and that God intervenes in our lives and may intervene in in multiple amazing ways, that prayers are answered in many cases and in sometimes amazing ways also. And so I think they wanted to get that story out over and above the potential risk of compromising their practice by having people think they had these amazing visions or dreams or something else. So I think that's the bottom line. Well, and this is it. There's a, a couple thoughts I had about that. Number one is, um, so would you say that most of the people, the doctors that you engage with would have like identified as Christian people or just people of faith in general? You know, it was it was all over the, uh, the, the map. I had some people that are very religious, that go to church uh, regularly, that participate in, in their religion and, and, and really are very devout. And some people that never go to church don't have an organized religion, but do have, uh, many, in many cases, from these experiences, uh, a, a belief that there's something else out there, there's a force, there's a God, and so uh, they're, they're quite spiritual. And again, some, in some cases, from these experiences. Hmm. And I just wanted to clarify that because I know whenever... Uh, and I, I can only speak for myself here, but whenever I would enter this conversation of, you know, miraculous intervention or some sort of divine experience that people would have, um, the analytical nature of, of my journey, um, you know, sometimes we live in sort of a hyper rationalist world, especially in the world of medicine that, that you operate in. And it's right. um, so immediately if we hear anything about, you know, divine intervention of some sort or divine experience of some sort. Um, the question is always, wait, is there a, is there a religious agenda here that people are setting aside truth? Um, or is this just something that, you know, somebody who's actively trying to think level-headed about this does, is just, you know, doesn't have an answer for it right away. You know, I, I don't think the docs really had an agenda except that they wanted to get people to realize that there's something else out there, that there are scientists and yet they had these amazing experiences that they couldn't explain and that people should know this. And I, you know, I, and I think the bottom line is for them, they wanted to give people hope. Uh, they wanted to give people some comfort that there is something else that, you know, when you're facing a serious illness or a terminal illness or some one of the family has died or, or someone's had a serious illness in, in your family or a good friend, that there is hope. There is something else out there that you can, that you can hold on to. And, you know, these were, th we, these were things that they just couldn't explain any other way. 
Hmm. Well, that's great, and I and I and I want to get into a few of the stories that you share in the book. For those um, who haven't had a chance to read it yet, it's it reads like a bunch of short stories. So you can actually pick it up and put it down as often. You can read it all the way through. You can read a few stories at a day. You can read one, you know, read a story in ten minutes and put it down till the next time you come through. Um, but one of the I, w- I just wanted to set the stage for people so that as we get into some of these stories, they kind of know where you're coming from and the context from which you. Are wanting to share these stories with the world, so, um, so let's let's jump in a little bit because I I'd mentioned to you bef- before we start recording here that um, uh, you know one of the things I I think is interesting about your work is not just the stories you share and the the things that we can learn, but these are real conversation starters because so many other people, like you said, these doctors are nervous to share their stories. I think there's there's probably a lot of people out there that have had experiences. Um, that they're nervous to talk about. And so hopefully this will provide um, food for a lot of conversations. Um, and that's true, Jeff. Like, you know, when I tell these stories, I'm, I'm always telling these stories to people in, in, in my office and, and you know, doing exams and so forth. And almost universally, some everyone has a story that, that they've had or that their family has had or they've experienced or a friend has experienced that you can't explain. And, and they'll, they'll, they'll be glad to tell me these stories because it's this, you know, when I mentioned some of the stories I've, experienced or, or written about it's a safe environment and and that's one of the other things i wanted people to to get out of this and that is it's okay to talk with your doc about some of the things that that don't always make sense that that you can't explain fully mm. yeah well uh well scott let's jump into a few of the stories because you kind of uh, split your book up into you know basically four major sections but there's sort of divine intervention there's the death and the afterlife you have healing there's prayer and I know you go into just kind of talking about doctors in general a bit. Uh, but let's just sort of jump into that divine intervention. You've, you've shared a story before about uh, Cleveland Manning. Um, that yes. I just thought it's a fascinating story. And so would you just be willing to sort of share that with us? Sure, sure. Cleveland Manning um, had a, a surgery. And uh, the, the type of surgery he had was because of his uh, kidney function wasn't, wasn't very good. And he needed to have dialysis. So they connected an artery and a vein in his, in his uh, wrist. And uh, that usually is a pretty simple procedure. But with Cleveland, when he went home, one of the sutures came out and he started to bleed like crazy because when you have an arterial bleed, it, you bleed out very, very quickly. Mm. So uh, his wife called the paramedics. They came as soon as they could. And they, they brought him right to the emergency room, which took a, took a while. And the ER doc that told me the story uh, was saying she'd never forget the, uh, the scene when he was brought into the uh, ER. He was on a gurney. There was a paramedic straddled over his chest doing CPR. The whole place was bloody mm. because he was still bleeding. They were trying to hold the, the wrist as well as they could. And they you know, immediately called for about four or six units of, of uh, packed red blood cells to transfuse. And he was basically dead. Uh, he looked white as a ghost. Uh, he was unconscious. And they were doing CPR and trying to give him blood and fluids and so forth and start IVs. And, and um, finally... Uh, and, and the ER doc had to make a decision. You know, the guy looks like he's dead. Should we really go ahead and 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 do the full full court press, or should we just say that you know he's been too long and he's gone because he had no pulse and, and no respirations? And she decided she'd had a case like this in the past, and she wanted to give it a good shot. And after about four hours of you know total resuscitation, lots of blood, fluids, and everything else. He opened his eyes and uh, a little while, a few hours to, to recover and, uh, from that. They'd stopped the bleeding. And um, his first words were very interesting. And, and um, uh, he said, uh, can you move me back uh, to that place?
place where they they were playing the music. It was just beautiful music, and I I heard some things I've never heard before. And the ER doc looked at him and and she said, "They don't play music in the ER." <laughs> and and he he got a little mad, you know. He said, "I I I that was a neat a neat place. I, bring me back to that room. It was." It was all white. It was clean. It was beautiful. There was wonderful music playing, and the ER doc looked at the nurse, the head charge nurse that was helping her out with the resuscitation, and and they looked at each other. They thought, "I bet he was in heaven." And uh, sure enough, uh, you know, Cleveland kept insisting that they bring bring him back to that beautiful room, but there wasn't the beautiful room in the ER. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he came to, he still uh, argues to this day with his wife, you know, she, and he said, well, you know, where did you actually bring me? And she said, uh, you know, it was, where do you think I'd bring you? She said, I, I brought you to the ER. So uh, the, the ER docs are convinced that that was something special that happened to him, that he actually died and then was and, and then came back. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's just uh, crazy is the only word I can think of. I mean, amazing um, you know, when I was reading, when I was reading that story, you, you had mentioned something about how, you know, there'd been an occasion at one point, I don't know if it was you or another doctor had somewhere in their history had heard about somebody in a training scenario where they were able to be, bring a patient back with a bunch of transfusions, but that after somebody had been gone for so long for such an extended period of time that it seemed beyond reason, basically, that they might be able to be resuscitated. Right. Um, right. what I wonder, so then we start using this language, like, someone's coming back from the dead essentially um and as i was just kind of simmering on that i was wondering you know has this type of story affected how you define death um it's kind of a big question i suppose or a weird question but has it affected the the nature of how you see and approach death in your work yeah a little bit um you know there are a number of stories where people have literally died and arrested and and then come back and uh, there was one story where an individual uh, was in a deep coma, and they thought he was brain dead, and uh, he was actually able to listen to one of the docs telling him stories for a couple of days in a row, and, and we think that that may have actually kept him going and, and had him desi- d- decide not to cross that bridge or cross that river and, and come back. So Was that the fishing uh, stories? The... That's the fishing story. Okay, okay. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I think... Um, uh, it, it's it's hard to define exactly what what death is. I think, and when you when you think about some of these stories, and I I think there there may be a uh, from from what I'm hearing from the doctors, there may be a time when people can die and then come come back. Um, you know, if they've if if it's just been a short time, and that's happened several times in, in the stories in the book. Hmm. Yeah. No. This is this is the, off the page of my uh, any kind of academic training I have. It's off the page of any sort of experience. And in, in some ways, of course, I, you know, even the reason I remember that experience of the the one doctor telling fishing stories to another doctor, I believe, was in the coma, if I recall. Yeah. Um, uh, was this? And maybe we can just touch on it since I'm bringing it up. But there was some dynamic where they were where he was actually speaking to him when no one else. Everybody told him basically, you don't. There's no reason to speak to him. He can't hear you, right? Um, and I just, if maybe just expand on that because I'm sure that there are people listening that have sat with a loved one or you know someone close to them in the hospital um, that they're being told that this person can't hear them, and yet they still have this sense of wanting to speak to them. And um, and this story might be helpful. So sure, there are two docs that really really could good friends and they every morning they'd get up early and meet in the doctor's lounge and tell each other stories and they love fishing 
And so they would like to tell, they'd talk about lots of things, but they especially like to talk about fishing. And the one doc was a, was a fishing aficionado. He could tell you every lure that you could use in the whole United States, in any lake, any river. And so he's uh, one day uh, when he didn't show up in the in the uh, doctor's lounge, our other doctor, Dr. Messett, went, went to look for him and discovered he had a massive stroke and he was in a coma. And when he visited him in the ICU, he found that uh, the intensivist that was was in there was saying that he's he's pretty much brain dead. We're going to pull you know pull the plug in a couple of days if he doesn't show any signs of, of life. And that just gave him you know chills to think about his good friend. And and you know when when you see someone on a regular basis, you don't realize how close they they can become. And and they had become very close. And he, he really missed them a great deal and wanted to do something. But you feel so helpless when a person's laying there in the ICU. What can you do? And the only thing he thought of was he could talk to them. And, and, and this is even as a doctor feeling helpless, right? Not just a, exactly. not just a family member or something. Exactly. Hmm. So he went up close to his, his ear and he looked around the room and made sure no one was there because he w- didn't want to be embarrassed. He was telling this guy some things, uh, the, 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 his friend that was in a coma. And so he started to tell him fishing stories. And he told him about a fishing story that he, where he went to Canada and he went to the Mackenzie River and he fished for grayling and they caught so many that he hurt his arms, reeling them all in, and they were usually catch and release. And it was an incredible fishing experience. And every day he'd he'd, he'd go in there and and tell him more and more you know, stories about about their experience and the you know with camping out there and and uh, the permafrost and all the stuff that that uh, went you know the details that went as part of the story and then the next uh, the next day was the day they were going to pull the plug because he was basically brain dead so when dr messett went in to see him in the morning uh it was too late uh, the room was empty the lights were out and he thought he must have died in the middle of the night so he took with the nurse who chuckled a little bit when he talked with him, which made Dr. Mess a little mad. <laughs> he said, when did, when did he die? When did Dr. Cornell die? And she said, well, he didn't die. He woke up yesterday, and now he's in the step-down unit. So as things went on, Dr. Messett missed him a couple times, and finally, they, when, after rehab, he caught up with him in the doctor's lounge again. And Dr. Cornell, who was the fellow that had the stroke, uh, had some speech difficulties, but he was able to tell Dr. Messett uh, thank you for for telling me those stories, and Dr. Messett was was frankly surprised when he could relate the exact details of all this the story that he had told him, which he'd never told before, hmm. about the fishing uh, in the Mackenzie River in Canada and Great Slave Lake and and uh, hmm. all the all the you know flying in with the with the pontoon boat and so forth, and you know Dr. Messett wondered uh, if if this person who is in a deep coma. Could hear him, and and Dr. Cornell said, "Thank you for for talking to me because no one else did, and you were the only one." And Dr. Messett, the the guy that was telling the stories, thought to himself, "You know, you wonder if there's a point where a person decides when they're so close to death whether they can cross the line and and go, or they can stay." Mm-hmm. And he wondered if telling those fishing stories, which was the great love of Dr. Cornell, mm-hmm. really influenced him enough to want to stay and and not leave. And mm. so we'll never know for sure, but that was that was what he was thinking. Yeah, that's a that's so interesting to me on a couple levels. Number one, um, just the fascinating piece of that regarding um, someone in a coma, or, you know, being able to hear you even when you think they can't. The second right. the second part of that that's quite interesting to me is the nature of um, when you use the language of this doctor 
is sitting there wondering what must be happening. And I, and I hope that people hear that, that even somebody well-schooled and, and all the, the scientific um, mechanisms that are at play with our health and our bodies and, the, and all of that, there still seems to be space um, for mystery and wonder and all this that, um, that even doctors have too, which I just think is, is uh, encouraging news for us, I think. And there is, and there's hope for anyone, for everyone. Mm-hmm. And that was the message of the book, that there is hope. Mm. Well, Scott, let's um let's shift gears a little bit to a story that it sounded like it hit a little closer to home for you, uh, maybe your wife, but uh, when it came to, uh, you called it Grandma, oh, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce her name right. Grandma right. Hanlon. Oh, Hanlon. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Really Grandma. fascinating story to me because uh, maybe it was the way it was written because it sort of had a twist at the end, and I wonder if you would maybe tell the story and, and leave sure. that twist till the end. Sure. Grandma Hanlon uh, was a midwife, and uh, she was the grandmother of uh, uh, Joan Heitzler. And Joan Heitzler was the, the the wife of Dr. Heitzler, who actually has delivered a couple of our kids. And I kn- we know them very, very well. And uh, Grandma Hanlon, as a, as a midwife, uh, delivered babies in the Irish community um, in Chicago. And uh, she was kind of a spiritual leader of the family. She was very, very devout, very religious. She'd even do things like bring uh, uh, sandwiches for the for the street people that uh, she passed when she took the train down downtown, and and she'd even give them some money occasionally. And people would laugh at her and say, you know, you're giving these bums money, and they're going to just spend it on alcohol. And she'd say, God would want me to help these people out. What they do with the money is up to them. Hmm. And so, uh, Joan was delivering. Joan Heisler was delivering her fifth baby, and was having some difficulties. And um, uh, they um, had the the baby came all right, but afterwards she was having some pain, and so they decided to to give her some uh, uh, anesthetic, which is called triline. In those days, triline is a, a oral uh, uh, inhaled inhaled anesthetic, and it puts a person totally asleep. So they were about ready to give Joan this uh, triline. And um, uh, Grandma Hanlon stepped into the room, and, and in the delivery room, there was Dr. Heitzler. That was uh, his partner who was, had done the delivery, about three of the uh, uh, nurses that were in attendance. And um, uh, Joan was ready to take the trialing, and Grandma Hanlon stood at the foot of the bed. She was dressed in her little sweater vest and a, a little blue dress, and her hair was up in a bun like it always was, and she had these old lady grandma shoes on <laughs> and she shook her head no don't don't do that joan don't take the trialine so joan pushed it away and um, she didn't know exactly why uh, she suffered with with the pain a little bit but that was tolerable and and the the thing was that no one realized that joan heitzler who had delivered the baby had eaten a large meal just before she went into labor mm. and about a minute after she pushed the mask away that would have put it put her into a total sleep she vomited the entire meal up mm. had she had the mask on she would have aspirated and it could have been very serious and even life-threatening when a person aspirates that much into their lung mm. so grandma hanlon uh, slipped out of the uh, uh, delivery room unnoticed by anyone in the in the room uh, and uh, she had uh, made her connection with Joan and, and Joan always uh, would say if I could when she was a girl if I could make it to Grandma Hanlon's lap I'd be safe so Joan finally made it to Grandma Hanlon's lap again their love having transcended time and all eternity because Grandma Hanlon had died 22 years before mm. and so she has this experience where her grandmother who's already passed is like in the room with her telling yep. her telling her what to do. it's just it's 
I mean, it's just kind of mind bending. It feels like something you'd see in the movies or on TV or something. Um, but yet there, there it is, right? I mean, that's just the yeah. stories there for people to do what they want with it. And I know Dr. Heitzler very well and all the doctors in the book. And, and these are not crazy doctors. These are just ordinary doctors. And you can see why they don't like to talk about these stories. People might think they're a little bit different. Yeah. But I'm discovering, uh, and, and when I give my talks, I'm also discovering that lots of people have had these kinds of experiences, but don't talk about them for that mm. very reason. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, well, let me let me ask you this. You talk about divine divine coincidence in your book, mm-hmm. and yeah. um, the different sort of. Just share maybe real quickly your your observations about coincidence versus providence, because that seems to be you know, kind of at the tension of people of why doctors might be nervous to share stories because people might just wipe it away as, as a coincidence or something. Well, you know, um, uh, some of these stories you can consider uh, that, there, that there was a coincidence, but, but, but the, you know, some of the things that have happened to some of these doctors are so unusual and, and so coincidental that um, you really – I think you can't even write it off as a coincidence. I think there's something else, someone else that's that's pulling the strings. I had a interesting experience myself when I was trying to get into medical school. I needed a prerequisite organic chemistry, and I I tried to enroll in one school, and and they they closed the the program because they didn't have enough students enrolled. So I noticed they had lots of books uh, in their in their bookstore, and so I had to go to a different school at Roosevelt University, which was about 70 miles from where I was living, to, to enroll. And they they were filled, and they they couldn't take me. So um, I talked with the registrar and was very disappointed that that they they couldn't get me a, a slot. So I said, who you know, I was desperate because if I didn't get into organic chemistry, I, I really couldn't get into medical school, and I'd have to get a real job and and become <laughs> a real person. So uh, I uh, I said to the registrar, you know, who can make that decision? You know, because the, the class the two classes were closed. One was filled, and the new one had opened up, and that was filled, and they had ten people on the waiting list. And she said, the only person that can make that decision is the professor. And she said, I said, well, where's the professor? And she said, well, go to the third floor, and 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 you'll you can talk with them there if, if you can get in. So I ran up to the third floor at Roosevelt University, and and there was a, a room full of kids. I think doing trying to do the same thing I was, talk to the professor. And I must have looked like a real sad sack to the secretary. And she's, <laughs> if you just want to take five minutes of the professor's time, go wait in the ante room. He's talking with the other professor who's teaching the organic chemistry class right now. So I zipped over to the ante room, and, and the, the doors there are paper thin, so I could hear exactly what was going on in the room with the two professors. And they were saying, you know, I'm, I don't know what we're going to do. We've got two classes. We've got enough books for one class, but not enough books for the second class. And the class starts tomorrow, and, and we, talk, we, we check with the publisher and all the surroundings schools and no one has any books available for us and they were really distraught over that and so they ended their conversation and the professor opened the door and signaled for me to come in and I told him my sad story and how I needed to get in and he said I'm sorry we can't do that because um, I've got 10 people on the list uh, you've, we've got a whole class that's full of students and I can't let you, I can't let you in I'm very sorry he shook my hand and, and saw me out and I said and and then you know I was it was a desperate time. <laughs> you had to make a decision if you're going to say I something, to make a huh? <laughs> I had to make a decision to say something. Otherwise, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be a doctor if I couldn't get into that class. I knew I wouldn't be a doctor. Hmm. So I said to him, "If I can find the books, will you let me in the class?" 
And all of a sudden, his eyebrows went up, and I could tell he was suddenly interested in what I was talking about, and my heart was beating like crazy in my chest, and then it went up into my neck, and I could feel it in my neck, and I could feel <laughs> myself getting, you know, a little red in the face, and, and a little embarrassed that I'd said that, but, and, and it took about what seemed like an eternity for him to answer, and when he answered, he said, can you get me 30? <laughs> and then my heart was in my, my, my throat again, and I said, more. <laughs> he said, you're in. <laughs> so, so I did it. I told them where the books were. They got the books. Everything worked out well. But I, when I thought about that initially, I didn't think, I thought that was a coincidence, that I happened to be there at the right time to hear those professors. But you know, the more you think about it, you think about how, how the timing of that was so incredible that what's the, what are the odds that I would be there at the very moment that only I could help them and only they could help me get into medical school. Mm. And I think that's beyond coincidence. And, and after writing this book, I think that was a divine intervention. Mm. Allowed me to become a medical uh, student and a doctor ultimately. Yeah. You know, I was just talking with a, a new friend uh, yesterday at lunch and we were talking about the nature of, and this is coming from my, um, as a follower of Jesus, you know, this is my Christian accent coming through. Sure. But um, we were talking about the, the nature of, of having a relational experience with God and not just the kind of a factual theological experience of God. And, you know, we were talking about, we weren't talking about this, um, you know, a heal, you know, a healing or a coincidence of getting to, to medical, a medical school class, but just that, like even your example, you can look at some circumstances, it seems, and come up with some rational explanations why certain aspects of the scenario happened. And yet there does seem to be more, um, resulting that is beyond just those sterile facts. And, yeah. um, and so that's, I think what, um, we were kind of talking about. It just feels like that's what you're describing there with your, you know, coincidence. Sure. There could be some coincidence involved, sure. but there's too many other things at play to, to think it's only that. So, um, and that's one of the purposes of the book too, Jeff, and that's to get people to, to, to really believe, to realize there's something else. Mm. And if they really believe that, then then they'll begin to notice those kinds of coincidences or little things that, that happen in their lives. Uh, and, and people talk to me about that and they say, oh yeah, I remember one of my patients just the other day said, I, you know, my father died and I, you know, I, I read your book and I, I, I was disappointed that, you know, he never was able to communicate with me after he died and, and I, you know, I got into my car one day and said, dad, I, you know, uh, tell me, tell me, are you okay? You know, I, I love you so much. And <clears throat> just about that time, the, the fellow, the, the fellow that died, his father's name was Elroy. He was riding on the expressway. And just at that very moment, a truck happened to pass him on the left side and the trucks, uh, uh, the, the writing on the truck was Elroy's moving. <laughs> And he mm. said, you know, that's more than a coincidence. That was my father telling me that he's okay. Mm. I think if people realize those kinds of things, Jeff, mm. uh, they're going to recognize those, those, those occurrences more and more in their lives. They just need mm. to believe. Yeah, and I, and I think what I'm trying to describe, too, along with exactly what you're saying, is that um, sometimes um, we use uh, analytical thinking almost as a shield to protect us from from the rest of our emotional and um, kind of spiritual experience in this world. So, right. you know, who knows, maybe there's some sort of confirmation bias. You see Elroy's go by and yet there is a, there's some, there's more aspects to the individual. So it, it goes beyond that. Um, yes. Maybe we could hit on one more story. Cause I, I, you could sit here telling us stories all day and we would, we would love to listen, but um, I want to respect your time. So what, 
But let's jump sort towards, I was mentioning, you know, this is a show where we, you know, we do believe in God. And um, there's a story you told in your book about the sort of crossed over between healing and prayer and miracles that um, that I thought was a really fascinating um more in the context of some people traditionally think of when they hear about miracles, because it was a kind of a, a uh, Christian context, I think. Um, but when you talked about Barb uh, was one of the patients that had MS, I think. Yes. Yeah. Barb Kaminsky uh, uh, was a, a, a young girl that, that uh, actually developed MS. And that, uh, Tom Marshall was the doctor that took care of her. I know I've known Tom for a long, long time. He's my age and he's been in practice for, you know, as long as I have. And he took care of Barb, and Barb was deteriorating with her at multiple sclerosis. She developed um, some respiratory problems because she couldn't breathe very well. She had a trach a tube put into her into her neck, to so she could breathe. She had oxygen going into the trach tube. She had a partially collapsed lung. She was so weak that she couldn't walk anymore. She was losing her vision, and um, uh, they decided uh, the family and 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 Dr. Marshall together that she would go into hospice because hospice was a nice program for a person that's terminal and they had to meet a certain criteria to be enrolled in hospice and that is they have to certify that that person is going to be alive less than six months. You can't never predict that for sure, but but you know the expectation is that she be alive less than six months and sure. and the pastor that visited her uh, was also of that opinion that she would probably not live another week or two. It was it was that bad. And so there's a radio program that uh, that that solicited prayers for people in in trouble, uh, people that were very sick or terminal. And so uh, the radio show listed Barb uh, as a person to to pray for. And 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 the next Sunday after the show had aired, uh, the uh, I think the aunt came into the to the room with a whole bag of letters uh, of people that had, were praying for for Barb. And it was just an amazing number of letters. She had trouble carrying the bag; it was so heavy. And Barb was, was, was there and, and still really, really sick and, and talking with a couple of her friends that had just been to church and, and just kind of resting and sleeping as much as she could over her last days. And then she, she heard a voice. Uh, it was a man's voice. And, and the voice said something like, um, young, young, young lady, uh, I want you to rise and get up. And uh, she immediately thought, this is the voice of God. And no one else in the room heard it. And she immediately got out of her bed. She took her braces off her legs. Uh, she was able to stand. She was able to walk. She could see again. And uh, she could breathe without the oxygen. One of the occupational therapists was there and tried to get her <laughs> to put the oxygen back on. And she kept saying, you can't do this. You can't do this. Hmm. And uh, Barb Kaminsky just uh, walked into the other room where her parents were. She did some ballet moves. She sat down on the couch. She kept sitting and jumping up and sitting and jumping up because she never had been able to do that for the last probably year. Hmm. And... Uh, the mom w- looked at her legs and grabbed her legs, and she couldn't believe how the muscle had come back in her legs, that she had very atrophied legs, very thin legs, and there was muscle in her legs. Hmm. And everyone just, you know, it was obviously a, a miracle that this had happened. Barb was perfectly fine at that point, and, and the next night uh, was the church service, and she wanted to go back to the church service and see everyone in church and, and show them, you know, what had happened to her. And so she didn't have a dress to wear because <laughs> the mom had given her all the dresses away because she knew she wouldn't walk ever again. So she had to borrow a dress from the neighbor, and so, so she was late for the, the church service. And when she walked in, the pastor Bailey, Pastor Bailey was the pastor at the time, was giving a, uh, some announcements. And when he saw her at the back of the church, he, he, he stopped talking because he, he, couldn't, he couldn't get the words. He didn't know 
what to say. He was so shocked, he thought it was almost the apparition. And as Barb walked out, casually walked down the aisle, everyone around the in, around her kept saying, that's Barb Kaminsky, didn't she die? Or wasn't she, isn't she uh, terminal? Didn't she have MS? And uh, all of a sudden, spontaneously, the whole congregation started to sing Amazing Grace. Mm. Can you imagine mm. the feeling that was in that church at that time with Barb Kaminsky walking down the aisle, totally cured by a miracle, mm. and everyone singing Amazing Grace? It must have been truly amazing. Barb mm. was healed totally. She went to her doctor, Dr. Marshall, who took out the trach tube, all the other tubes, uh, there was no evidence of any residual problem, and Barb is alive today. She promised her life to God and Jesus, and she married a pastor, and she is doing good works uh, to this day, 30 years later. How about that? That's. I, it was just. I remember reading the story. It's just crazy, and it's. Um, you know, when you described her coming coming into the church. Um, well, first of all, there's there's all these. There seems to be this common thread in all of these stories where someone has this experience after having an experience whether it be um seen in other people or in 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 barb's case where she felt like she actually heard god speak to her where people have to make this decision you know am i gonna am i gonna listen to this voice am i going to um and you, it's kind of like you're checking you're crazy you know people she walks into the church and people are checking their senses wait a second this doesn't seem mm -hmm. right isn't this i thought i knew what what was real here and this can't be right, right. And, right. and then it seems like when they're faced with that reality, at least in a church service, there was this space for people just the only response seemed to be worship, like to just yes. give thanks and worship. And then um, and it seems like in many other circumstances um, that people seem to be at a loss for how to respond to this. And so, right. um, you know, if they're not people of faith, they, they might feel especially stuck. I, I don't know. But, um, you know, so I, I really do appreciate these stories so much because I, I do hope we're creating some space for people to um and let me say it this way in fearless questions you know when it comes to the big questions of life um it's very easy to argue about um theoretical conversations and propositions but the real questions when they come out of your own story are really the questions of the heart that we need answered that we want to pursue at least and right. um, when you read the stories and hear the stories out of your book um you know you can read some stories and think oh that's pretty cool and then you you read one particular story and all of a sudden you feel sort of a tear come into your eye and you're thinking, where's that coming from? And, and you realize it touches very closely to maybe a, a personal experience you've had in your own life. Um, and to that end, one of the things I heard you say a number of times um, in the book and in other interviews, you say that you were always kind of on the lookout for stories that either made you cry or gave you goosebumps. Um, right. The, the crying part I understand when, it, when stories touch our emotions, I was interested for you as a physician, um, the goosebumps part, like how that mm -hmm. how that spoke to you, or or your willingness to kind of lean into that. And I was wondering if you might just expand on that real quickly. Sure, Jeff. You know, I don't know if this is scientific, but uh, again, I, I I I heard lots of stories, but the stories I wanted to include, uh, and the ones I did include, either made me cry out of just emotion, not sadness, but more, more emotion, or gave me goosebumps. And I think those emotions occur when you get closer to the divine. And I think as we as we approach uh, God in in all all that we do, uh, we there are some emotions that that seem to to be universal. Mm -hmm. 
uh, burning in your chest, uh, a feeling of wonder, uh, an emotional feeling of, of where, you, where you cry or have goosebumps. And I think those are the things mm. that uh, I wanted to bring out in the book that, that um, when you are touched by an unseen hand, mm. those are the things that bring out those emotions and, and look for those emotions uh, is my point too. Mm. Well, I like that. Yeah, I, I like your use of the word divine. You're, it's not even... It's really not that your your book is not trying to um, convert anybody to your particular no. uh, faith tradition or anything of that nature. I think that's a well well that you described it that way. Where you're just saying there's an experience of the divine that most people are having that we're just not talking about, and right. so it's a conversation worth having. Um, Scott, be, as we wrap up, I know you talk about um, you also spend a little time just sort of um, sharing your perspective of how you're your feelings about doctors in general has been affected through, through your life and through hearing stories like this, but maybe you could just share, you know, how this has changed you as a person. And then, and then sort of as along with that, if there's any questions, you know, we're, we're dealing with big questions. We talk about experiences of the divine, but maybe there's a, is there a question or something you wish more people were talking about? Sure. Um, you know, I, uh, learned a lot about docs when I, on, when I did the book, because, Doctors don't talk to each other on, on a deep level like this. Doctors will talk about the potassium level and someone had a stroke or someone had a cancer and they had this particular procedure and so forth. But it was a real uh, pleasure to talk with docs uh, about their deep feelings about life and so forth. And I learned I learned a lot about, about doctors. And uh, again, I, I mentioned earlier, I, I think most doctors are truly sappy do-gooders. They want to do good in the world every day. Mm. Let me give you just a brief example. Andy sure. Rao is a cardiologist, and uh, we were just talking about uh, routine things on, on the floors where we have lots of conversations. <laughs> and I happened to mention to him we were doing some adoption work. We've adopted a bunch of kids, and we were doing some adoption work. And I said to Andy, there's this little girl in Romania that probably will never be adoptable because she has burned feet. She got too close to a space heater. She was cold one night, was wearing plastic shoes, got too close to a space heater, fell asleep, and her shoes melted on her feet. Oh. And she has such deformed feet now that she'll never walk unless she has multiple operations. And, you know, we thought that was you know, kind of too bad. And, and about a week later, he called me up and he said um, – uh, you know, Scott, we decided to take that girl. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, we decided to adopt her. And I said, Andy, you know nothing about her. She could have all kinds of illnesses. She could have uh, some major psych problems and so forth. And he said, it doesn't matter. Mm. We have the means. Uh, she's a girl in trouble. Uh, we can make sure that she gets good care, gets her feet operated on, and maybe give her a chance to be a normal person at some point mm. in the world. And so that's the kind of thing that I heard on a regular basis, those kinds of expressions of I want to help someone every day. And I think people don't realize that doctors in general are, are just a bunch of sappy do-gooders. And so <laughs> uh, hmm. if there's a question that, that uh, uh, I, I'd like people to ask, uh, it, it is uh, how, can I, how can I talk with my doctor about spiritual things and, you know, that um, – uh, tell tell me about um, you know the feelings that I'm having, uh, and and um, so just uh, kind of invite them into the conversation, huh? Exactly, exactly. Mm. And uh, do you anticipate a lot of those doctors would be? I mean, it seems like even even being asked the question, it still seems like they'd be nervous to tread into those waters. But you think, given permission to go there, they might do it. Well, you know, uh, I was a little surprised uh, when 
when all the doctors gave me these stories. And what happened afterwards was, was very interesting. We had a launch at the hospital for the book. And most of the doctors showed up at the launch. And they were treated like celebrities. Uh, it was really amazing that they were not criticized. It was like, you know, thank good, thank you for coming out with these stories. Mm. So just just the opposite of, of what I thought. So I think if people uh, want to talk to their doctors about some some amazing things that they've had, I think doctors are more and more receptive. And mm. so I think it's a uh, they, they can open the conversation now. Oh, very good. Yeah, that was actually one of my favorite things of the entire book was the fact that there were names like there were the doctor's names were on these pages. And I thought to, uh, f- you know, for the, the different conversations I've had over the years, mm-hmm. um, these questions and these stories meant a little bit more to me because doctors were willing to attach their names to them. I thought that was uh, a powerful part of the book. So, you know, Jeff, one of the doctors didn't became, uh, was anonymous because he was involved with the story himself and he was the one that had the stroke and at the launch, he saw the reaction of, of everyone toward these doctors. And he said, Scott, I want to be part of this, too. You <laughs> cannot tell my name. I don't want to be anonymous anymore. I want to be part of this movement. And so, <laughs> there so you go. Kowalski, so. uh, very good. Well, Scott, thanks so much for your time today. I know um, if people want to follow up, because there's going to be people with questions, there's going to be people that want to pick this up and read it. Um, and I know you have uh, a website. Is it physiciansuntoldstories.com? Is that right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then any social media that you direct people to or mostly just the website? Uh, just the website. And um, we, uh, we've we got a, a Facebook page and they can get the book through amazon.com. So it's uh, okay. available Kindle and, and hardcover. Okay. Okay. And, um, and is there places that, um, you know, do you guys – when people, I just, I'm thinking of those the, those folks listening that have a story that maybe they've never felt safe sharing it with somebody. Um, do you have any sort of forum that they would be able to share a story with you or, or yes. people on your team? And how would and they do doing, that? We're doing other books. We're doing books uh, uh, from the general general people. We're doing books on clergy and priests. Uh, we're doing books on that number two doctor book. Okay. Uh, so they can share their stories on, on uh, our website. Just okay. uh, just don't have to tell the whole story. Just say, I've got a story, call me up or whatever. And we're looking for stories because they're all over. And uh, virtually everyone that's listening, Jeff, to you today will either have a story themselves or if their family has a story that uh, has some, some significant meaning, some spiritual meaning to them. Hmm. Scott, so good. That's a uh, deep thought and um, stretching our minds and our hearts today. And um Thanks for being here. I hope people pick up the book, read the stories. If they've got their own stories, to reach out to you through your website. And um, I'm looking forward to, to seeing what comes next. Thanks, Jeff. Great right. to be here. All right. We'll talk soon.